Nestled among the trees in the Appalachian Mountains of North Carolina lies an estate. Not just any estate, but the largest single-family dwelling in America. The Biltmore Estate, built by the Vanderbilts in 1889, is still to this day the largest private estate in the country, with 178,000 square feet. Inside, one could find a bowling alley, heated pool, and a library with over 10,000 volumes. Of course, the Vanderbilts were the exception. Not everybody in America was this rich. The new wealthy class, although very prominent and larger and richer than any in American history, was still rather small. But it did prompt people to ask a bigger question. How did they get so rich? Was it a combination of hard work and intelligence? Was it because of inheritance? Did education and skill play a role? Or was it just simply luck? These questions, plus a deeper unpacking of new attitudes towards wealth, will be part two of our series of The Gilded Age. I'm your host, Mr. Nasosi, and I'd like to welcome you to Print the Legend, where we discuss the stories that made up America and the stories that America made up. As we discussed in our previous episode, The Railroads, we found out that the Gilded Age was the most. It included money, brought in by James Pierpont Morgan. It brought in oil with John D. Rockefeller. It brought in steel with Andrew Carnegie and trains with Cornelius Vanderbilt. These four key figures during this time period will help guide us into understanding their wealth and how it impacted the social and political fabric of the United States. There's a time in each year that we always hold dear, good old summer time, with the birds and the breezes and sweet scented breezes, good old summer time, when your day's work is over, when you are in Let's take a few moments and discuss the psychological or sociological component of this time period through a concept of survival of the fittest. This popular conception grew from Charles Darwin's idea of the process of natural selection in the wild. The world was forever changed when this applied to wealth inequality in the United States. For the first time, there was now a theory behind why these individuals were so wealthy. They called themselves social Darwinists, led by Herbert Spencer and William Graham Sumner. And they believed that the humans who were the most fit became the most successful. Whatever people had the necessary skills to prosper, was it perhaps talent, brains, or hard work, these would be the people who would rise to the top. Was Rockefeller just born to do this? Was this inherited in him biologically? Another question to ask about these individuals is were they robber barons or were they captains of industry? Is he to be placed on a pedestal for the nation as one who moved us forward as a captain of industry? Or should he be demonized as a robber baron? 
This was a definition of the American capitalist at the turn of the century who enriched himself upon the sweat of others, exploiting natural resources, or possessed unfair governmental influence. We're in the money, we're in the money. We've got a lot of what it takes to get along. We're in the money, the sky is sunny. Oh man, depression, you are through, you done us wrong. In its purest sense, the goal of any capitalist is to make money. And John D. Rockefeller did just that. In fact, he was America's first billionaire. He would then go on to serve as the poster child for capitalism. Overcoming humble beginnings, Rockefeller had a vision and a drive to become the richest person in America. This was at a time period when the average American earned $8 to $10 per week. Rockefeller earned $8 to $10 per minute. Again, the same question can be applied to Morgan, Carnegie, or Vanderbilt. Whatever conclusions can be drawn, Rockefeller's impact on the American economy demands significant recognition. Rockefeller introduced techniques that totally reshaped the oil industry. That's the O of our acronym. In the mid-19th century, the chief demand was for kerosene. But through his refining processes, there are many byproducts when crude oil is converted to kerosene. What others saw as waste, Rockefeller saw as gold. He sold one byproduct of paraffin to candle makers and another byproduct of petroleum jelly to medical supply companies. This sort of arrangement, having multiple facets of one company, is called a trust. A trust is a combination of firms formed by a legal agreement. They often reduced fair business competition. As a result of Rockefeller's shrewd business practices, his large corporation, in fact, the largest, not just in the United States, but in the world, the Standard Oil Company, became the benchmark for future capitalists. But oil was not the only commodity in great demand during this time period of the Gilded Age. The nation was built on steel. The railroads needed steel for their rail cars, and the Navy needed steel for a new naval fleet, and cities needed steel to build skyscrapers. In fact, every factory in America needed steel. So like Rockefeller, Andrew Carnegie was not born into wealth, but at the age of 13 came from Scotland and settled in the small western hamlet of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. During the Civil War, Thomas Scott was sent to Washington, D.C. to operate transportation for the Union Army. His protege, Carnegie, spent his war days helping the soldiers get where they needed to and by helping the wounded get to hospitals. By this time, he had amassed a small sum of money which he quickly invested in an emerging iron and steel company. He was on his way to creating the largest steel company in the world. When William Kelly and Henry Bessemer perfected the process of converting iron to steel cheaply, Carnegie, who had watched this process very closely, applied his own shrewd business tactics. 
Like Rockefeller, who often bought other oil companies to eliminate competition, Carnegie did the same thing through a process that is known as horizontal integration. Horizontal integration is when a company consolidates many of its firms to handle the same part of the production process. Vertical integration, another part of Andrew Carnegie's plan, was typified by one firm engaging in different parts of production, for instance, growing the raw materials, manufacturing those materials, transporting those materials, and then marketing those materials, all within the same umbrella. All of these tactics made the Carnegie Steel Company a multi-million dollar corporation. But Carnegie in 1901 sold his interest to J.P. Morgan, who paid him $500 million to create the Goliath U.S. Steel. tycoons of the Gilded Age were rags-to-riches stories. J. Pierpont Morgan was born into a family of wealth. His father had already made a name for himself in the banking industry, and so it was Morgan's job to continue the family business through the Gilded Age. By 1860, Morgan had already established his own foreign exchange office by knowing the power of foreign investment. During the Civil War, he paid the legally allowed fee to purchase a substitute soldier and evaded military service. He made handsome profits by providing war materials and banking during a collapsed economy. When the Panic of 1873 rocked the nation's economy, Morgan protected himself wisely and emerged in the aftermath as king of American finance. In fact, it was Morgan to whom which President Grover Cleveland went for a loan on behalf of the United States. So we return to our original question. Were these men robber barons or were they captains of industry? Some Americans were trying to reconcile their Christian beliefs with this newfound idea of social Darwinism. Because the church had been such an opponent of Darwin's ideas biologically, it was difficult for religious folks to accept social Darwinism. Andrew Carnegie and John Rockefeller both agreed that the most successful people were the ones with the necessary skills. But they each believed that God played a role in deciding who got those skills. Because God granted a select few with the talent to be successful, Christian virtue demanded that some of that money be shared back into society. This is where the difference lies between the hardcore social Darwinists and proponents of a middle way, the gospel of wealth. Carnegie and Rockefeller became philanthropists. These are wealthy citizens who donated large sums of money for public good. So how do you answer this question, robber baron or captain of industry? These men used union busting, fraud, intimidation, violence, and their extensive political connections to gain advantage over their competitors. They were relentless in their efforts to amass wealth while exploiting workers and ignoring standard business rules 
as we will find out in our third part of this series, labor? Or do you view them as an individual that used their wealth to donate millions to charities and nonprofits? Did they support their communities by providing funding for everything from libraries to hospitals, universities, public parks, and zoos? And ultimately, do you view these men as an individual that gave people jobs and improved quality of life in the latter part of the 19th century or the early 20th century? Income inequality expands twofold during the Gilded Age. While the wealthy lived in their opulent homes and dined on succulent food and showered their children with gifts from all over the world, the poor were crammed into filthy tenement apartments. They struggled to put a loaf of bread on the table and accompanied their children to sweatshops each morning while they faced 12-hour or longer workdays. We have to remember that these men did not live in an economic vacuum. In fact, economic development was facilitated by a supportive culture, one which placed confidence in the industrialists and the businessmen to do the country's bidding. In fact, the government was not to interfere in their efforts. Most Americans embraced the principles of laissez-faire economics, which argued that economic forces should be allowed to work themselves out with maximum freedom and minimal government interference. While many have concluded that these economic forces unleashed during these years of the Gilded Age were crucial to the development of American society, many will concede that America suffered through this transitional period with low wages for workers. Farmers were closing down farms and urban conditions were deplorable. So whether the Gilded Age contemporaries condemned or defended the social and economic forces at play, and whether historians find Mark Twain's or Sumner's assessment of the period more compelling, almost all will agree that the things began to change around the turn of the century moving towards an era that is progressive. Coming up in our next installment of Print the Legend, we will look at how labor and farmers reacted to the growing inequality. And we'll conclude the series with politics in the Gilded Age, how Washington and local governments were not voted for, but purchased. I'm your host, Mr. Nasosi. Thank you for taking time out of your day to join me on this journey. And I look forward to welcoming you back for another episode of Print the Legend, where we discuss the stories that made up America and the stories that America made up. <laughs>